to the Thessalonians. Um, and in a lot of respects, the church at Thessalonica, that's the name of the place, Thessalonians are people who live at Thessalonica. Thessalonica is like one of Paul's favorite churches. Like he has all these kids, right? He has Corinth, he has Ephesus, he has Colossae, um, and um, he loves them all. He, he cares about them all, but he definitely has favorite kids. And so um, the Thessalonian church is one of his favorites. And um, he, you're going to read First Thessalonians tonight, and you're going to see this. Um, he, really, um, he really just emphasizes his personal care for them. He's excited about how well things are going in Thessalonica. Uh, he's encouraged because he's heard a report from Timothy about how things are happening in the church. And um, he really is just writing to them to encourage them. And he makes really exalted statements like, um, you are my crown. Right? Paul's been laboring, and he's been doing this. He'll mention in his letters that he trusts that for all of his labors and all of his sufferings that the Lord is going to reward him. And a lot of times the symbol of that reward is a heavenly crown. And Paul writes to the Thessalonians, and he says, you are my crown. You are my reward for all of the labors. Like whenever Paul thinks about all the things that he suffers and all of the tribulations and trials and hardships he goes through, what makes it worth it? The fact that the Thessalonians are there. The fact that, that, that this church is thriving the way that it is. Now, in, um, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul does mention that there is a problem in the church. But it's not a problem in the church like there have been other problems in the church. Um, in, in a lot of these other letters that we've looked at, there have been conflicts, Jew-Gentile conflicts, syndici Iodia in Philippians. Or there's been heresy that the church has begun to embrace, Gnosticism in Corinth or the weird Jewish Gnosticism in Colossae. In Thessalonica, there is a problem, but Paul addresses it very, very differently. And the problem is that there is a group of Gnostics. Are you surprised by that at this point? No. No. There's a group of Gnostics, and they're not really part of the Thessalonican church, but the people in Thessalonica have been around them. They've heard their arguments. And these Christians are beginning to struggle with the idea of Jesus' second coming. Do the Gnostics believe in Jesus' second coming? They don't. Or um, they don't believe that he's going to come back physically. Why do they not think he's going to come back physically? Yeah, and he never even had one, right? Um, so they, they, they deny Jesus' second coming. Sometimes what Gnostics do is they spiritualize the second coming. And basically what they say is um, that Jesus... Um, Jesus' second coming basically means whenever he uh, returns into our hearts. Kind of sounds like a Disney movie, right? Like, it's not that Jesus is going to rip the clouds apart and come back physically and stand upon the earth and, and be a king or anything like that. Instead, Jesus' second coming is whenever we achieve gnosis and he comes back and lives in our hearts, spiritually. All right? So the Thessalonican church has heard this sort of a teaching 
And it's not that they've embraced it, it's just that they've been bothered by it. There's, um, and, and Paul has a pastoral um, burden over this. And so flip with me to chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 13, Paul is addressing this to some degree, and he says, We do not want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep. What does he mean by asleep there? Yeah. We don't want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep or those who are dead, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. What Paul is saying is, I want to teach you something about dead Christians, because is it okay to grieve whenever someone we care about dies? That's okay. But he says, I I don't want you to be uninformed about the state of dead Christians, because I don't want you to grieve as other people do uh, who have no hope. What hope do we have for um, our loved ones who have died in Christ? They're in a better place. They're in heaven. We're going to see them again. And one day when Christ returns, what's going to happen? They'll be resurrected with the rest of us. So Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed about what's happened to them because I don't want you to grieve as other people do who have no hope. Notice that he's not saying don't grieve, but he's saying don't grieve like people who don't have hope. Verse 14, he continues, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, uh, excuse me. <coughs> For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So, we want to map out what Paul is saying here. Um, Jesus was raised from the dead, and one day, Jesus, who is in heaven is going to do what? He's going to come back to earth. And what's going to happen whenever he comes back to earth, according to this text? Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who have fallen asleep, because I don't want you to grieve like others who have no hope. And then verse 14, he says, since we believe Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. So when Jesus returns, is it only Jesus returning? Who else is returning? Yeah, the people in heaven, those who have fallen asleep. So um, Jesus is going to return to earth, but he's also going to bring with him, and I don't know how to draw a soul. You know how to draw a soul? Ghost. You remember that crazy lady who was like the little orb things? The, The Robert E. Lee lady? Well, yeah. Oh, what? Okay. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. We'll just draw little circles, I guess. I don't know what a soul looks like. You don't know what a soul looks like. This isn't what a soul looks like. But we're going to pretend. All right? So, Jesus comes back, and he brings with him the souls of dead Christians. So, when Jesus returns in the second coming, do you know that he doesn't do that alone? He brings others with him. 
Continuing in verse 15, Paul says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So they're coming back, and this is where, you know, all the alive Christians are. He says, we won't precede those who have fallen asleep, meaning into a state of glory, meaning in the resurrection. You remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 talked about the resurrection of the dead, but then that raised a question, what happens to Christians who are still alive at the second coming of Christ? And he said, we will not all die, but we will all be changed. So um, what Paul is basically saying is, it's not that you're going to get your resurrection body and then somehow way further on in the future, they're going to get their resurrection body. He says, we don't perceive them. How are we going to get our resurrection bodies? All, at the same All of time. us together at the same time. That's really important for Paul, right? He, you know, oh man, it's not fair. I got into glory sooner than my holy Aunt Bertha did. You know, uh, that, seems, that seems not right. And, and Paul's saying, you don't have to worry about things like that. We're all going to be... Uh, receive these glorified bodies at the same time. In verse 16, he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. So what else is going to accompany the return of Christ? Okay, trumpet, um, sometimes trumpets are used for music. In the Old Testament, what are trumpets used for? Battle. Battle. So, it says that Christ will return in three things. Jesus will give a cry of command. And then it says, um, uh, the voice of an archangel um, what is an archangel? Like a higher up. Yeah, what would an archangel do? What would his job description be? Important messages? Maybe? Or kind of like keep all of the other angels, the commander of the other angels? Yeah, he's a commander. So, Jesus yells, archangel yells, um, what do you think the archangel is yelling? Charge. <laughs> Charge, yeah. <laughs> For Aslan, you know, um, you know, something, something like that. Um, it, this, is, this is all warfare language. And then it says also, um, voice of Christ, voice of an archangel, and then with the sound, the third thing is the sound of the trumpet of God. Revelation will talk about seven trumpets, that each of them is um, God bringing divine warfare to the, to the earth, um, just like he did with the plagues in Egypt. And so this is um, all very um, loud. It's all statement of warfare, and it's all very noisy. When Jesus returns, does he do so secretly and quietly? No. no, he does it. How? He yeah, triumphantly, loudly, 
noticeably publicly, we might say. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So, um, kind of two things happen. The dead in Christ are raised. So, there's a resurrection. And then we who are alive will be... um, you know, I think that we should read here that we'll be changed, we'll receive our glorified bodies, and we'll be caught up into the sky. And then it says, we will always be with the Lord, therefore encourage each other with these words. Why do you think that all the believers are caught up into the sky? By the way, does it say that they're all caught up into heaven? No. It says that they're all caught up into the sky. Has the text used the word heaven already? Yes. Where? Verse 16, the Lord sends from Yeah. So the Lord sends Jesus from heaven, but it's not that we are caught up with Jesus into heaven. Um, the place where all of this is occurring is the sky. Um, a different vocabulary word that Paul's using. Why do you think that all the believers are caught up into the sky? Okay, they are meeting Jesus there. And also, they're caught up into the sky disembodied or embodied? Embodied. Embodied. This is after the resurrection. Okay, it's after the resurrection. The dead in Christ are raised, and then we're caught up to be with them in the sky... And it says, we'll be with the Lord forevermore. Why do you think that all the Christians, both dead and alive, after the resurrection, are floating in the sky for a minute? Spiritual way. Huh? Oh, Jesus is taking us on a magic carpet ride? There could be a connection there. That's not what I'm driving at. What happens to the world at Christ's coming? What does he do to it? What does he do? He makes it new. But what what metaphor is always used for making new or purifying? Fire. Fire. So, we're going to see in the book of Revelation, Jesus is making all things new. After, after the resurrection of, of the dead, Jesus is going to make all things new. Uh, he catches his people up into the sky so that he can make all things new and usher in the new heavens and the new earth and can purify it. This is the language that Second Peter uses for it. Second um, Peter chapter 3, talking about um, this making new says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth. 
bodies? Stars and planets? Probably. Um, that's a little bit of a cryptic phrase, but probably um, it's, it's a way of referencing the whole creation. So, again, why are we caught up into the sky? Because there's this whole burning thing going on, right? But in Revelation, what we're going to see is after this new creation is finished, the church descends again, and we live in the new earth with God. For how long? Forever. Uh, Paul says in this text that we were just reading, we will always see the Lord. So, if we want to map out what Paul is saying about the uh, last day, the day of judgment... This is how um, Paul describes it. Number one, Jesus returns. And who does Jesus return with? Yeah, um, with dead saints, with the, with the souls of dead saints. Also with <coughs> angels. Um, number two, um, as Jesus is returning, everything about his return speaks of what? War. So there is judgment that falls. Sometime during this judgment, or maybe it's even before the judgment, but sometime around this judgment thing. We'll have to look at Revelation to get more details here. Um, but, but Jesus returns, and um, there's this warfare that comes. But then... Um, there is a resurrection and um, the dead are re- resurrected. What happens to those who are still living? Yeah, they get made new. It's kind of a death and resurrection, but there's none of the falling asleep. So we would say there resurrection and transformation. Um, our bodies are made into glorified bodies. And then all believers are caught up into the air, caught up into the sky. World is purified, made new. And then we'll see in the book of Revelation, um, Christ and church live in the new creation so here's our here's our outline of what Paul is saying will happen on the last day now I want to think about how to approach this for a second um can I tell you a really popular interpretation of this text that I think is wrong you guys have heard of the rapture before the rapture is the idea that um, towards the end of history, um, there's going to be a time of intense evil on the earth. And the idea of the rapture is that either before that time of intense evil on the earth or halfway through it, depending on your perspective, Jesus kind of quietly and secretly returns. And what happens to all of his people? Yeah, they basically get taken up into heaven, and all the people who are left on earth are the unbelievers. So if you've ever watched or know of, like, the Left Behind series, 
This is very, you know, rapture theology. Okay. First um, Thessalonians four, the text that we just covered, is kind of the proof text that people point to for the rapture, and you can kind of see why. There's this idea of Christ returning and then Christians being taken up into the sky. All right? Um, I want to point out to you, though, people who hold to a rapture view really kind of hold the three comings of Christ. His first coming, which we read about in the Gospels with his crucifixion and resurrection, and then they hold to kind of this second coming, which isn't a public announcement. Instead, it's only his people who are taken up into the air with him, and everyone else just goes about life as normal. I'm sure that, you know, there's panic in the streets, like, you know, a portion of the population is missing now. There's a lot of stray dogs or, you know, helicopters that crashed or something. But, um, you know, it's not that Jesus returns publicly. His public coming would really be the third coming. After the rapture and his people are taken up with him, Jesus comes a third time um, in in judgment. And this is where he reveals himself to the world. And 1 Thessalonians 4 sometimes is taken as proof of this rapture idea. But I want to point out to you, does 1 Thessalonians 4 show you a secretive, quiet coming of Christ? There's a lot of what? Noise. Noise. And someone who holds to a rapture position would probably want to point out to you, is there anything said about the wicked really in this text? No, it's all about believers, which is one of the reasons that they're trying to use this to support the rapture. Um, only believers are really mentioned here. So, you know, what is happening with the, um, with the unbelievers? But I want to... Um, kind of make two points on that. The first point being, Paul's primary purpose in this text is not to give them every in and out of what's going to happen when Christ returns. His point is to encourage them. I don't want you to be unaware about what has happened to Christians who have died. So his point is a lot narrower than here's everything that happens on Christ's return. He's just really talking about Christians. The second point that I would like to make is chapter 5 actually does begin to talk about the wicked. We'll read that in just a second. But um, I, I, I'm going to go ahead and tell you guys right now, um, the way that the rapture is typically understood and explained, I can't really find it in, in the text. Not just this text. I don't really see it in Revelation. I don't really see it in Matthew's Gospel, which is where another proof text is. Um, I, I can kind of understand how people are coming to that conclusion, but I don't quite think that that's what's going on. So if you're someone who, you know, uh, grew up and you woke up from a nap and your parents weren't, you know, in the kitchen where you thought they were going to be and you're like, oh, rapture. Um, I don't think you have to worry about that. Um, you know, I also don't think that you need to get in touch with um, the atheist organization that promises to take care of your pets once you're raptured. Which is a real that thing. thing. That is a real thing. Yeah, that's a real thing. Um, that that wow. is. Uh, you can get on the interwebs and and you can find that. But um, I don't. Only because they're atheists. Oh. Yeah, yeah. They're like, hey, we don't really believe in the rapture, but if it happens, we'll take care of your iguana for you. Um, which I mean, like, 
I guess that's nice. Um, but, uh, yeah. So, um, So you don't find blood in the text? You said personally you don't see the... The rapture. Okay. I don't I mean, this is kind of the main text for it, and I don't see it there. This really seems like it's talking about a public final coming of Christ, not a, you know, secret one where all the Christians leave, but then life goes on as normal. So... I um this is the main text that people use to support the rapture and I I don't I don't find that interpretation particularly convincing personally. I uh huh. But what about like chapter 5 verse 2? Like only a couple I'm confused now. Well, that's what we're talking about. He he's continuing on into chapter 5. In chapter 4, he talks about the fate of dead Christians. He says, I don't want you to be unaware of what's going to happen. And he goes through this. Jesus returns, and he returns with the archangels, with the trumpets, which is a sign of warfare and judgment. And then he talks about the resurrection and the transformation. The people are caught up into the sky. um, And that's really all that he talks about at this point, um, except that they're always with the Lord. And then he continues on and says, concerning the time and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So is this going to be something that you can pin down to January 13th, 2024? No, right? No man knows the day or hour, only the father knows. So he continues and says, while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come among a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So what Paul is saying there is he's referencing the day of the Lord, which is the day of what? What is the day of the Lord? day of judgment it's the day of jesus's second coming and he says i want you guys to be aware that the day of the lord's going to come like a thief in the night people are going to be going about business as usual and they're going to say there's peace and security all is going as it always has and then boom jesus is going to return in judgment kind of like sodom and gomorrah right you remember sodom and gomorrah the people are just doing business they're going about life as usual and then boom all of a sudden fire falls on it right a very unexpected event. But then he says, I don't want you guys, you Christians, I don't want you uh, to be surprised. All right? Are they going to be around for the day of the Lord, by the way? He says, I don't want you, I don't want it to be like a thief in the night to you. I don't want you to be surprised. So are they going to be around for it? Yeah. I mean, look at the text here. Um, He says in verse 4, You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Instead, you're children of the light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of darkness. So don't be asleep as others do, but let us keep awake. You remember Jesus' parables about his second coming? Like the parables of the ten virgins? And the ten virgins, five of them have the oil, and they've kept their wick, 
and then five of them have been doing what all night? I've been snoozing. And then the bridegroom suddenly appears, and those who have been snoozing, are they invited into the wedding feast? But the five who were awake and alert, they get to go in. So in this text, he's talking about the day of the Lord. He's talking about the second coming. And he says, you all don't need to be lulled to sleep. You need to be children of the light. You need to be children of the day. You need to be what? Ready for it. But for other people, they're going to go about their days as normal. They're going to say there's peace and security. They're going to go about their normal life. and It's going to come like a thief to them. It's going to seem like it came out of nowhere to them. And so I don't think that he's talking about two separate days in chapter 4 and chapter 5. I think that what he's talking about in chapter 5 is continuing his thought from chapter 4. As he's talking about the day of the Lord in chapter 5, he's talking about the same stuff that he was talking about in chapter 4. Does that help, Josh? Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So... um, We'll be able to look at some of the sequence of events more whenever we get to Revelation, but it's good. Um, How many of you guys have tried to read portions of Revelation before? Easy or hard? Hard. One of the things that we want to do with the Bible is interpret Scripture by Scripture. You know the best book for explaining the Bible to us? The Bible. The Bible. And so what we do whenever we interpret scripture by scripture is we start with what is clear and easy, and then we move from there to that which is more difficult. And we interpret hard stuff in light of easy stuff. So Paul um, is quite a bit easier to read than Revelation. And as we've read about Paul's um, understanding of the end... Um, What we've seen so far is basically this. Right now, we're living in the age of the Gentiles until the, do you remember the word, the something of the Gentiles comes in? Fullness. Fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And then once the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, what happens after that? Yeah, conversion of of Israel, conversion of the Jews. How much of Israel gets saved according to Romans 11? All Israel. And then, according to Romans 11, what happens after the conversion of the Jews? Then the Deliverer will come from Zion. What's that a reference to? He'll banish wickedness from Jacob. Who's the deliverer? Jesus. Jesus. So, according to Romans 11, fullness of the Gentiles, then the conversion of the Jews, and then the second coming. Paul mentions, though, that there's going to be a lot of people on earth who are still going about business as usual, saying peace and security, peace and security. So, is everyone saved? But are some people saved? So, um, the second coming, Jesus comes back with his saints who have died and with the angels. 
He goes to war. He executes judgment. But he also does something else. He raises the dead, and he transforms those who are still alive so that they have glorified bodies. And then all believers are caught up into the sky, and creation is made new. This is getting us into Revelation territory. And then we dwell with Christ for how long? Forever. Now, has Paul given us all the details yet? No, there's a lot more to fill in. But this is what he's told us so far. And um, does that answer all of our questions about the end times? No. No. But, why is it important to emphasize this stuff off the bat? Because that's kind of the main worry that they had. Yeah, it, um, it's, it's meeting the main concerns of the church. I'm meaning for our sake, though. Uh, why is it important that we spend time and try to get this kind of outline first? Has Paul seemed to explain these things pretty clearly so far? Like Romans 11 and 1 Thessalonians 4 are not super, super cryptic. Are they as cryptic as Revelation? No. So I think that the the reason that we're going to keep doing this and try to get this outline from Paul um, is because this is giving us a good foundation, and then as we start getting into later stuff, we can start filling it in a little bit more, right? Um so it's important for us to, to get kind of the, the skeleton right off the bat. So, did you have a question? I was going to ask where the um, millennial reign fell into all of that. Do you want my view? Oh, all of I would say this is millennium. Some people really want to put the millennium right there. I think it's really hard to do that. Um... I think I think it falls right there. Um, I think that the fullness of the final fullness of the Gentiles converting and um, the Jews converting constitutes the millennium before Christ comes, and then um, Jesus. What does Jesus do during the millennium, Josh? I I don't I haven't really done a whole bunch of research on that, but what I always thought was that it was just a thousand years when Jesus was physically on Earth ruling and there was sin. In people's hearts, but not manifested. Yeah. Um, millennium, basically, what it's going to say is that it's an era when Christ reigns. And where Satan is bound. So he can't, he's still there, but he can't do as much as he used to do. And, um, I mean, if that's really what the millennium is, then that... Uh, I'll say it this way. If there are less details about the millennium given in Scripture than what we typically think that there are, it's a, it's a broader word than we typically think it is. Right. So we'll look at that once we get to Revelation. Um, I, would, I would put it there, though. That's my view. Um, if Jesus' coming is after the millennium, we call that post 
millennium. Um, I think it's a time when Jesus is ruling. Physically on earth or no? I mean, all Revelation 20 really tells me is it's a time when Jesus is ruling. When is Jesus ruling? And are numbers in Revelation usually going to be used in a very literal capacity? Or do numbers in Revelation have some sort of, like the number seven? There's seven bowls of wrath, seven trumpets, seven this, seven that. Does that mean that literally in heaven, God is like, all right, I have a cabinet here, and I have seven bowls, and it is full of mean things. And I'm going to take this bowl, and woo, there we go. Like, all right. Is that how the seven, does it, does it mean that there are literally seven trumpets given to the angelic army? Or what do, what do seven bowls of wrath and seven trumpets of war probably represent? A completion of wrath, a completion of war judgment, right? Um, so is, is 1,000 with the millennium, meaning there's going to be 1,000 periods of 365 days in which there's something happening, or what else could 1,000 represent? If I go home today and Mackenzie was like, how's your day? And I said, I had to grade like 1,000 papers. What does 1,000 represent? A long time or a lot. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's something that we really have to consider with the millennium. And for a lot of people, that they, a lot of people act like that question is off the board. It says a thousand, so it means a thousand. Well, Revelation is the most symbolic book of the Bible. And I'm sorry, but in the rest of the Bible, before Revelation, our numbers sometimes used non-literally. Oh, quite a lot. Quite a lot. So if, if numbers are used non-literally quite a lot before Revelation, if we then come to the most symbolic book of the Bible and it starts throwing out numbers like every chapter, okay, 144,000 people that have the mark of the lamb on them. Does that mean that there's down to the number exactly 144,000 Christians left on earth at the times that these things are happening? Or what is 144? How do you get 144? Think about it mathematically. How do you get 144? 12, 12 times 12. Is 12 an important number? Yes. Yeah. 12 times 12, and then you're timesing it by what? 12 times 12 to 144. To get to 144,000, you're then timesing it oh, by 1,000. All right. So if I just threw out a number 12 from the Bible, if I said, I say 12, what does that make you think of in the Bible? 12 disciples. 12 disciples or 12 tribes of Israel. So, if you're reading about the 144,000 in Revelation, and then you realize that that is linked to the Jews, what is it trying to tell you? There's a lot of Jews from each of the 12 tribes who are Christians during this time, who have the mark of the Lamb during this time. Does that mean that we better be able to fast forward in history and count out, oh, no, there was 144,001 Christians. (laughs) Revelation told me wrong. Or, or, oh man, there were 56 million of them, or, or something. I, is it just a way of saying there's a lot? 
or something along those lines. I think that um, we have to recognize the Bible uses numbers in that way. And whenever we come to the most symbolic book of the Bible, it's going to use numbers in that way, probably even more often. So we're not to that yet. Read First Thessalonians tonight, and you'll get one step closer to being at that point. So, yes? What's the difference between the two lists? This one's just incorporating Romans 11. Oh, 